So uh, this morning is um, the contemplating uh, sila or virtue and, and how that affects us in our daily life, the choices that we make and the things that we refrain from doing as a result of it. So if we look at the five precepts as a basic um, framework, the first precept is panatipata, which is to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. The second one, Adina Dana, is to refrain from stealing or taking anything which is not offered. The third one, Kamesimichachara, is to refrain from uh, sexual activity that's inappropriate. And Musawada is to refrain from false, harsh, divisive, or useless speech. And the fifth, Suramaraya Majapamadatana, is to refrain from drugs or drink so substance abuse so on the first one you know um, to refrain from taking the life of any living being it seems uh, it seems to me at least from where I'm sitting a little bit obvious that if we're interested in cultivating a, a, a life dedicated to awakening and to harmlessness Respecting other life is a kind of fundamental basis of that. And so, you know, on the surface, the, like the outermost level of that, you know, killing other people is not really such a good thing. <laughs> but when we take it to more and more subtle levels, it actually is quite a profound reflection of how is it not only that we stop harming other living beings but we refrain from harming on all levels in every aspect and dimension of our life so you know that includes the possibility for consideration you know um, the kind of way we relate to insects the way we relate to mice and other creatures that are supposedly invading our space and um, but also how we relate internally to whatever is arising and how we deal with the people around us in terms of the way we're relating to them so on a on one level it's about not killing people and on another level it's about not harming anything any living being or any aspect of life that arises so as a discussion topic, it's actually very rich, you know. And as a practice, it's very rich uh, to consider, you know, the ways in which we live and act and behave and our patterns and our habits and whether or not they are, in fact, really harmless. So as with yesterday, the conversation around generosity, there's two elements to it. Same is true with this whole topic of sila. One is to actually contemplate and reflect of the sila which is there, which is present. The fact that it's out the ground that's actually established. And to make a point of reflecting on it. So, you know, we all laugh, you know, not to murder anybody, but it actually isn't a joke. You know, there are a lot of people for whom that is not something that they can actually say. But they didn't kill somebody this week. And so that kind of, even though it seems very gross, it's not something to um, bypass the fact that this standard is something that we keep, right? And 
I don't think anybody here is involved with killing animals as a regular lifestyle. And so the the kind of level of commitment that one has with this, one actually needs to reflect on and continue to find a sense of nourishment from the goodness that's already present in one's life, the commitment that's already present in one's life. And then one balances that with then being able to find inroads into, well, where can there be more development? What actually are patterns, are ways of behaving which have edges in them which are actually harmful? So we balance reflecting on the wholesomeness which is present, the sila which is present, with where it can be further developed. So many of us have all kinds of habits which are harmful, and many of them are related to the way we relate to ourselves. You know, the punishing, blaming, criticizing, demeaning, slandering. Those are all harmful. And if we really take this as a kind of really a strong reflection not to engage in any of those behaviors or any of those attitudes, then we need to start really waking up to when they're present. Because we can't refrain from believing in them or following them or somehow indulging in them if we're not aware that they're there. Or they're just sort of operating as background or, you know, taken as given. So in order to practice harmlessness, there needs to be quite a profound commitment to alertness, mindfulness, and persistence. Because this stuff, for many of us, is such background, absolute, like truth that we forget that it's actually a thought that arises in our mind. It just seems so much part of the woodwork that we don't recognize it as, as an arising attitude or value. So it needs to be, there needs to be a very strong commitment not to harm, as well as a very strong persistence and alertness to watch these things when they arise, to catch them. Now, as we are more able to catch this stuff as it arises internally, then we'll be more able to see it as it's being acted out externally. Okay? But when the stuff goes on as kind of basic, take-it-for-granted norm, you know, this is just part of the woodwork, then we also don't catch it when it's acting out with other people. And the same, you know, with family and friends. We have patterns. Some of them are not at all wholesome. They're harmful. And yet we don't catch it because we've always done it that way or that's just the normal thing to do and we don't see what we're doing. So harmful behavior is anything which is um, transgressing another person's boundary, which is not respectful, which does not allow um, another person or another aspect of a person to exist in the space which smashes, which squashes, which manipulates, which controls, which demeans, which humiliates. Any of those kind of behaviors are harmful. Now, I was reading a book. It's a classic book. It's called um, Negotiations in an Uneven Table, and it's really worth reading. It's written by a a woman who's a nurse, and she's been involved in mediation Uh, between doctors and nurses for decades and she's developed a certain amount of skill as a mediator and a facilitator and she's very bright. And so, you know, her basic, the title of the book is is that between doctors and nurses it's an uneven table. They don't have an equal power. Um, 
And so when they're trying to negotiate, they're coming to the table that's unequal. It's already stacked in the favor of the doctors having the power. And yet, when you recognize that, then you also wake up to the fact that when you have an unequal table, often there's all kinds of other strategies that get used in order to rebalance the balance. And many of us, in many different situations of our lives, have unequal tables that we're trying to renegotiate, and we do that often through a whole variety of strategies. One chapter of the book, which is really, really worth reading, is called Manipulation as Tradition. And there have been times when I wanted to photocopy this and pass it out in the monastery. It's like mandatory reading. Because when you have an unequal balance of power, then it is inevitable that you come up with manipulative strategies in order to rebalance the table. But when our basic ground is interested in integrity and harmlessness, then these things actually need to be very conscious of what we're doing and how harmful they are or whether they're harmful. And so we take these strategies that imbalance or rebalance something that's inequitable in one situation and they just become norms in our, in our life and the way that we deal with things. And she had ten different ways of describing different manipulative strategies. And it's really, it's a worthwhile chapter to read. It's a worthwhile book to look at. And one of them, which I found really fascinating, because I would have never have normally considered it a manipulative tactic, is, um, I can't remember the way of describing, uh, it's perseverating, where you repeat something again and 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 again until you just wear somebody out as a manipulative strategy because it actually is crashing through another person's boundary in order to get what you want. So this one about non-harming also connects up with the desire to have what you want, what's not freely offered, because oftentimes these things go together, where you have an idea about what you want, and then the basic idea is, 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 I will do anything that I can in order to get what I want. And anything goes as long as I get what I want. And so when we're looking at this in terms of harmlessness, what we need to really figure into the equation is it's all right to ask for one's needs and it's okay to be persistent, but not at another person's expense. And so then what is needed is to be able to discern and to differentiate what's at another person's expense. And that's a kind of sensitivity and a level of thoughtfulness, which is something which requires a lot of skill in developing. And I can see for myself over the decades of living in the monastery, you know, I came into the monastery thinking I was actually quite sensitive and thoughtful and kind and gentle. And it was quite a rude awakening to recognize how much of my languaging and my communication patterns were um, demanding, demeaning, humiliating, and cruel. You know, and this kind of waking up is not, you know, it's not the kind of stuff. It's like, ooh, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's just really. It's not something that one wants to associate with oneself. And yet, until one is able to see that, then it's really hard to change. 
because one has this smear idea, I'm kind, I'm sensitive, I'm thoughtful, I'm reflective, I take other people's needs into account, you know, as an idea, and one actually misses reality of what's actually happening. So the first one is not to harm, and that one not to harm is huge. And, you know, we could spend a month, we could spend a year, you know, talking about that and dealing with that and working with that and looking at the ways that that manifests in terms of in our own practice and the way we relate with other people and the way we relate with the world. It's really, really huge. And it has so much depth in it that if that was like the sum total of one's practice motivation is not to harm, it would take one really, really, really far. Because the only way that one is able to wake up to non-harming is by bringing in all these other factors. You know, clarity, wisdom, kindness, patience, compassion, equanimity. As well as the beginning to get a differentiation between what is an intentional harming and what is unintentional. And what I have observed in the monastery, it's rare that people actually intentionally harm each other. Okay, They don't set out with the intention to harm. But what happens is, is that people are really cruel to each other because they're not conscious of their intention. So it's the difference between the conscious intention to harm and an unconscious, unaware intention to harm. And the other one happens a lot. You know, it happens frequently. And so each of us needs to wake up to not only our intention and become clear about what our intention is, but again, it's like the footsteps of the Yeti. Where are the traces of unintentional... It's unconscious intention to harm, not unintentional. It's unconscious. We're not actually aware of it. And so when we actually have an unconscious intention to harm somebody or put them down or demean them, or to crash through their boundary, regardless of the consequences, then what are the effects? You know, what kind of effects does it have on the person or the family or the system or the rest of it? Now, what this brings up, which is also very tricky, is is, is that all of us are in different relationships with a whole variety of people. And as parents with children, particularly young children, we have certain kinds of responsibility to make sure that they are safe and to make sure that there are certain things that are in hand. And, you know, different parents and different people have different kinds of values about what is appropriate in terms of, you know, at what, what is the responsibility of a parent to assure and where's the boundary between that and forcing one's, one's uh, view and opinion on top of them. And that also is a very rich conversation, and I certainly don't have magic answers to any of those questions, but I know that when we open up these topics and explore them, they're very rich. So, you know, Marshall Rosenberg in Nonviolent Communication has ways of working with some of these different dynamics which inevitably have power inequities in them. You know, the power of a parent is not the same as the power of a child but ways of managing those power inequities in ways which are respectful and do not crash through a person's boundary and do not impose or force the other person to do things in ways which are actually harmful or injurious to them. So this is a topic which is worth investigation. 
The second one on the five precepts is to refrain from taking that which is not given. And in this culture, it is huge because we feel we have a right to anything we want. It's sort of like it's part of our constitutional amendments, you know. You know, the right to pursue health, happiness, and the pursuit of freedom means that what I want is my God-given right, and I can do whatever I want to get it, you know. And this is wrong view in terms of Buddhist understanding, you know. And so we need to be able to start differentiating what is a deeply ingrained cultural habit around wanting and what is actually unskillful. So, you know, as a nun, you know, I have what's offered, you know. And it's tricky because every single thing that I have need for, I am dependent on other people to give or to offer or to make available or to see that I have. And there have been times when I've just been, you know, desperate because I've needed something and I'm in a position where I have to negotiate this whole huge complicated realm in order to see that I get it. And it's not being, it's not coming. And the manipulative strategies that I have come up with in order to secure or to get or to gift, you know, are just like, and then I think, you know, what am I doing? You know, this is not what I ordained for. And so there has got to be a very deep sense of something other, a sense of refuge, that if I don't have this, I'll be okay. Now, you know, with some things like, you know, a picture on the wall, you can cope with that a little bit easier than things like food. (laughs) But in my life, I've had to take it to the basic stuff of like food and medicine and, you know, access to being able to go or to get or to communicate, you know, really basic stuff. But the whole thing has the same basic principle, which is is that there has got to be a refuge that we are resting in other than the stuff that we have. Okay? And even when it comes to basic needs like food and shelter and medicine and clothing and warmth, you know, there has got to be something other that we actually take refuge in other than that. Because otherwise we become absolutely desperate and then in our desperation we feel like our manipulative strategies are completely justified. And they're not. They're not justified and they have consequences even if we are desperate. So we need to wake up to that. So the whole concept, the American concept, is is that I I have a God-given right to have everything that I want and I have it no matter, that right is given no matter what consequences there are in actually getting it needs to be examined. (laughs) And so I would suggest, I mean, you can check it out for yourselves, but I would suggest that it's okay to have wants, but it's really important to begin to understand how we relate to our wants. And it's never okay to get them at another person's expense. Okay? There might be situations where this is one of the consequences that we have to navigate, particularly when you've got, you know, like when you're in situations where there's tremendous power inequities and you're trying to have your voice heard and it's not being heard, you know. You know, and what do you do in a situation like that where you need to say something, it's not being heard. And and they're saying, or whoever is saying in power, saying, we don't care, we're not interested, we want to listen, you know. So situations like that are tricky, but it's not okay to hurt people. So we have to navigate these complex relationships in a way where we can continue to return back to our own refuge 
without actually transgressing our values. Now, the third precept around sexuality, on some levels, it's straightforward in terms of not engaging in sexual behavior, which is harmful, which is betraying other primary relationships, which is engaging with people who are underage. But as a force field in our life, it's actually something that's worth investigating because it has a huge impact in the way that we do and say and what we choose to wear and how we relate to food. And I mean, it's a, it's a big topic you know, for many people. And coming into a healthy, easeful, rested relationship with one's sexuality is rare. You know, in my journey and seeing people on retreats and things like that, it's rare. It's not that common that people actually do the nine yards of going through the whatever it takes. And it's not an easy journey to get to that place of, yes, I know who I am and I know what my sexuality is about and I feel completely at ease with it. You know, in all the various permutations around that. It doesn't mean because it's not easy, it's not worthwhile. It just means that for most people, it's, it's, it's a long journey. There's various, obviously, gradations of it. The fourth precept around speech, obviously, for most of us, is one of the most difficult ones to keep. You know, what is right speech? You know? So, what is truthful? Now, somebody says, good morning, and you say hello, and you say, how are you? And you say, fine. Well, I've got cancer. You know, my foot's broken. My dad's dying. You know, it's like, is that truthful? And yet, you know, you don't have to spill out every single absolute truth to every single person you meet every time you meet them. But, you know, we have, again, conventions around relating that have nothing to do with truth. And so each of us have to find a level that actually works for us about what that means, you know. So what's truthful? Now, what's truthful in terms of what we're relating to in other people and also what's truthful in terms of what we're relating to in ourselves? What are we telling ourselves? What kind of stories are we telling ourselves? And how are we believing them? You know? I was... I was uh, you know, I was, I was teaching a, a day-long retreat and I was lighting incense. And a woman asked a question. She said, you know... She said, normally when there's incense, I have headaches and I have all these kind of body reactions. And, and, and so what I'm wondering is whether it's, what's the right thing to do? Should I ask you to put the incense out? Or should I watch the story that I tell myself whenever I smell incense about the whole thing that arises in me when I'm in the presence of this? And I thought, you know, that's a very honest, way of relating to the situation of there's all of these different levels there's the there's the familiar pattern with what happens there's the body reactions that come with that and then the stories that I tell myself around it and I said you have to decide what's the right thing you know if the body thing is getting strong then then you need to intervene but if you can watch it at the level of just this is a story I'm telling then maybe you can just stay with that. So, how we relate to our stories is a big topic. 
Now, harsh speech or divisive speech or slanderous speech, you know, these are all things that we need to watch in terms of what we do with each other and how somehow deliciously comforting it is for two people or three people to get up and shred somebody who's not present, you know. You know, there's something primitive and satisfying about doing that that really needs to be looked at and examined, you know, the way we can do that with each other. And in a family system, in a community system, in a there's nothing which can be more damaging than incorrect speech. I mean, trust can be dismantled rather quickly when the speech goes in a particular way. And so a tremendous amount of care needs to be taken with that. But another topic which is interesting is what's useless. What's useless talk? And how much of our day is around that, you know? So we have these social conventions which are based around talking about nonsense in order that we can feel good with each other. And sometimes the nonsense dominates in order that there's a kind of emotional connection that there's a relatedness with each other. And that's a really interesting topic to explore. How do we navigate this whole range of, as human beings, we like to connect, but sometimes... The only thing that we're talking about is dribble, you know? And what does that look like if we actually open that up as an exploration? And then the fifth one around uh, drug and substance abuse. You know, there are certainly many, 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 many people in this world for whom this is a really big topic, you know, substance abuse. No, I just found out that there's this whole um, online uh, recovery group called 12 Path. These are Buddhists who are in recovery. And, uh, but, you know, the whole thing of addiction and addiction to pleasure is something that all of us can relate to, independent of whether we've got issues around substances. You know, addiction to food, addiction to pleasure, addiction, addiction to the sense of me, the sense of mine, the sense of becoming, the sense of addiction to praise, the addiction to, a- to affirmation. You know, these are... We have sometimes addictive relationships with these basic things. So when we open up this whole sphere, my goodness, this is a whole other huge sphere, which is not a small topic. You know, the way we are, the sense of I dominates and the way the mind obsesses on particular topics and doesn't have a healthy relationship with it. So, you know, with food, obviously we need to eat. But watching what happens with the way the mind grabs, grabs and grips and locks in and obsesses about something or another. So, maybe a few things to contemplate. (laughs) So, are there any questions? The five precepts are to refrain from harming, to refrain from taking what is not offered, to refrain from uh, sexual misconduct, to refrain from incorrect speech, and to refrain from uh, 
but substances which confuse the mind. So this is the contemplation for the day to see where you are both in reflecting on the wholesome aspects of your sila. So it's really important to remember that one needs to reflect on the sila that is already present and and balance that with investigating where it can be developed. And what is a present for you today in your interactions that comes up around any of these topics. I, there's just two more thoughts that come with related to taking what's not given. You know, normally our minds are oriented around things, you know, taking stuff. But we can take time and we can take energy that's not given either. And so, you know, this is also a way of looking at how, how can we be in right relationship with this in a way which is wholesome and upright and has integrity and You know, we don't need to become wallflowers or doormats and let people walk over us. That's not what's being asked. But it's also uh, really important to begin to see that, you know, we are not the only people in the universe. And as we navigate through the complexity of relationships, that it's really, really, really important that we see that it doesn't happen at other people's expenses. Enough for a morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.